It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to yet another exciting edition of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is a wacky Wednesday in the wonderful weird world of COVID-19, ladies and gentlemen, a world where the leader of the opposition is unable to attend Prime Minister's questions today because he is self-isolating in the family home. It is as perfect an allegory for what is going on as anything I can actually think of. Deputy Leader Angela Rayner will step in for the first time and will go toe-to-toe with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The Labour Party must have been listening to this show yesterday. Uh, They've been shamed into it. I was saying how ludicrous it was that they used Ed Miliband when they should have used their deputy leader, Angela Rayner. I'm sure she's going to be a lot more entertaining than Sir Keir Stoner, uh, who really has bored us into submission over the best part of the last couple of weeks. So, we will be bringing you PMQs live from midday in the company of Charlotte Ivers, and I think it will be rather a good one. Meanwhile, the round testing is back on. It seems there's always a problem with the testing system. Either there's not enough people taking them, or there's not enough testing kits to go around, or there aren't enough people to administer the test, or the test Tests don't actually reflect accurate results. Now, after telling everyone they could get a test if they wanted one, Health Secretary Matt Hancock says they'll have to start rationing them again. It's almost as if this government has some kind of masochistic streak and need to hand people a stick with which to beat them. We'll be seeking solace with the Independence Chief Political Commentator, Monsieur John Rental. 03444991000. Later on, we'll be joined by archaeologist and historian Neil Oliver. He's got a new book out called Wisdom of the Ancients. He's going to tell us exactly what we can learn from the past. Plus, he's got a testing story of his own to tell us. Also, we're talking to Dr Dominic Pimenta, an early combatant in the pandemic wars. He's been working on the COVID front lines since the beginning. He's got a new book out as well. All proceeds are going uh, to NHS charities. He's a man that I've had one or two political disagreements with over time, but let's see uh, what he's got to say about how uh, we are doing, uh, whether or not we are in any great danger of a second wave, and why the government can't seem to quite get on top of this terrible situation. 0344 499 1000. I'll also be giving you my view on those big BBC pay rises. It might not surprise you to know. My colleague Kevin O'Sullivan last night pointed out on Twitter uh, that Zoe Ball has got a pound for every listener that she has lost in a pay rise. That wouldn't work for me, because we're putting listeners on, I'm afraid. We'll also be finding out whether it's a good idea to commandeer a former army barracks in Folkestone to house about 400 illegal immigrants while they apply for asylum. This comes as news reaches me that 165 more migrants were detained after they landed in Hastings on Monday and were attempting to wander into the town. 
You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station, of course, on the planet. It is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So, before you know it, right, it's midway through September. I'm looking out at what can only be described as an Indian summer. I'm assuming we're still allowed to call it that, uh, if it doesn't upset anybody. Uh, it's very warm. Uh, the streets are quite busy with people. As I said, the bus I came in on today was absolutely rammed full, despite the fact that they're supposed to be somehow social distancing people and making sure that there's not too many people crowding onto one particular vehicle. Uh, I'm told as well that the trains are getting busier, uh, not so much the overgrounds into London, but very much um, the uh, the tube trains are getting busier, but also hearing, slightly disturbingly, that around seven 70% of people on some train lines coming into town uh, are, in fact, not wearing masks at all. But let's talk to John Rental because we've got lots to do this morning. We've got plenty of headlines to go at. Um, COVID cases surge amongst the middle age, middle aged rather, as test shortage worsens. We've got COVID-19 testing crisis could take weeks to resolve, admits uh, Matt Hancock. They seem to have got sort of themselves all tied up in knots over the testing scenario. John, very good morning to you. Um, what is it about this good morning, government? Mike. What is it about this government? They can't seem to get anything right on the testing front uh well uh, i think it's very difficult and uh they're not very good at it well uh, that's very true matt hancock <laughs> matt hancock keeps promising uh, more than he can deliver yeah uh now there's a sort of i mean that's a sort of uh, basic tactical question in politics do you do you set yourself really stretching demanding targets in the hope that you will force your civil service and your department and, and and all the people who work for you to uh, to go the extra mile and actually deliver something extraordinary mm. or do you make modest promises and then uh, bask in the warm glow of public approval uh, when you easily meet them uh, and matt hancock's decided to go for the difficult uh, course well i suppose uh, it would not, be it's not going very well for it there wouldn't be many advisors that would say to you uh, why don't you explain how uh, this testing uh, regime that you're trying to attempt to make a work it probably won't work uh, and you probably haven't got the expertise or the wherewithal or indeed the capacity to do what it is you'd like to do. So we'll just see how it goes. I mean, it's not much of an announcement, is it? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, the point is, you know, Matt Hancock did not have to say, you know, we we want a mass testing program where everybody in the country can can be tested once a week or right. whatever, he, you know, whatever, he, whatever the current pro- promise is. Uh, I mean, he made one very firm promise, which was to get the uh, testing up to 100,000 a day mm. uh, by the end of April. That was that turned out to be incredibly difficult. They had to, uh, uh, what's the polite word? Uh, they had to manipulate the figures yes. uh, slightly to uh, to actually make, claim that that was achieved. But uh, he has actually increased uh, the amount of testing uh, hugely. I mean, there's been a vast increase. There are hundreds oh, there of has. thousands of people being, te- but, being but my, tested every day. That's true. But my point, John, is that they can't really win. And I'm not necessarily blaming the government for not getting it right. But partly, for example, over the weekend, I was reading that, you know, uh, there's a problem now in the care home sector because there's more positive tests uh, and there's more infections going on. And that's purely and simply because they're testing more people in the care home sector. And they're finding that more and more staff that work in care homes have actually got covid albeit that it might not be actually um, causing them any great illness. I'm not sure you're right there, Mike. I think the, uh, I think the I am increase right. in cases, the increase in cases is not purely the result of uh, more tests being carried out. If you look at the, uh, if you look at the numbers, the, num- the proportion of tests which are positive uh, is, is rising as well. So the, there is a real increase. Uh, in the number of cases, although, as you say, it is mostly among uh, people who are not showing symptoms and among younger people. Yeah. And therefore, it's less to worry about. 
Well, that's right. And that's why that's partly, I suppose, what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at here is that if you do more testing, there will be more positive tests. And I also saw a statistic at the weekend which said that only 20 percent of those people who test positive have any symptoms. Well, the latest figures were 65 percent don't have symptoms. So 35 percent do have symptoms, according to the ONS. Um, but I mean, you're sorry, right, yes, but, you're absolutely right. Sorry, it's the know, other way around. It was 20 percent that did have symptoms. So 80 percent didn't. Well, yes, I mean, a lot don't. But the point the point about care homes, obviously, is that I mean, most of these cases are in the staff because it's the staff who are being tested. Yes. Uh, primarily. Yeah. Uh, but obviously they can they can pass that on to the residents. And, you know, although there has already been uh, you know, quite a terrible death toll in care homes, there are still, you know, an awful lot of residents who haven't had mm. coronavirus and might still be vulnerable to yes. it. And therefore, you know, the, gov- the government is absolutely right to be to be cautious about that. I mean, I, I, I fully accept that. Uh, I mean, the only the only question is, when are they going to get the uh, the, the testing bottleneck sorted out? Mm. Because, uh, you know, it seems it always seems to be uh, tomorrow or the next day or next week or a few weeks yeah. time. But it's not always uh, the same problem, is it? Up. It's not always the same problem because it seems to me that it was only two or three weeks ago. And although I do know that time has kind of concertina for all of us, I've met somebody today uh, who uh, said, oh, I've been uh, somebody who actually moved in very close to me. And I, I said, oh, when did you move in? Four months ago. And I'm like, really? That <laughs> feels like it must have been about 10 years ago or something. But, you know, so the time flies ridiculously. But I'm sure it was only two weeks ago that we were seeing pictures of empty car parks and empty testing centres because people weren't going there to get tested, despite the fact that they could. So there seems to be a kind of a yeah. way. And we've suddenly gone from that to people being told to go 200 miles to get a test because it's the closest place they can get to. Yes. Well, I mean, as Matt Hancock said yesterday, there's been a, a sharp increase in demand for tests. And right. I suspect that's part, that's mainly because the schools have gone back. Right. And so you've got the you've got colds going around schools, which always happens at the start of start of term. And of course, every time a child gets a cold, um, people think it might be coronavirus and therefore uh, want to get tests. Yeah. And so. You know, as Matt, I mean, Matt, Matt Hancock came very close to blaming people for uh, getting tests unnecessarily yeah. uh, yesterday. And not, another ridiculous thing he said was that if you provide free tests, then, of course, um, the you know, demand will uh, will increase, uh, which well, is mean, not quite. Well, I mean, surely demand, in, also, demand also increases when you tell everybody to get a test if they want one, doesn't it? <laughs> well, well, I think that's a bit more significant. I yeah. mean, what he did say was, if in doubt, get a test. And of course, now all the people who are in doubt are trying to get tests and can't do it because they're all trying to do it at once. Exactly right. Uh, I mean, we've got Neil Oliver coming a bit later on, who's got a story very similar to that. On day three, he finally got a test that was within 20 miles of his house because he wanted to test a couple of his kids who who looked as if they might have symptoms. But we'll hear his story from him. But I've also got a story for you this morning um, about a school up in Manchester, Key Stage 1, shut down till the 28th of the month because um, one teacher was found to be testing positive. So they've sent 90 children home. Well, that does seem to me to be an overreaction. Yeah, I and mean, I think uh, uh, you know, I think I think that's that's unnecessary. But uh, you know that is bound to happen. And one of the ways of preventing that from happening is to have a really fast and mass testing system up and running, so that people can get test results quickly. Because yeah. I mean, the whole point of getting tested is not is not because that's how you keep track of the virus. Because I mean, people can can can, can isolate if they've got the symptoms. 
But if you have a test and it's negative, then you can go back to work or back to school yeah. uh, without having to stay at home for, for 14 days, which is the really damaging thing. Although, bizarrely, if you've gone on holiday somewhere which has a lo lower level of infection than Britain, you can't uh, go back to work after uh, less than 14 days, even if you do have a, a negative test. So, you know, it's all over the place, isn't it? Well, it's bound to be a bit, um, a bit rough at the edges. Yes, uh, this is where I like. This problem, is where I like to see you defending the government, John. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to defend the government on this. You've just done it. Well, I'm just explaining. I'm just explaining that you know you can't always get all the rules uh, to make complete sense. I mean, this rule of six, uh, you know, everybody knows it's uh, it's baloney. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one scientist described it as irrational, but the problem is. You have to do something to try and restrict social mixing. Uh, and so they've chosen, you know, the rule of six because it's easy to understand and everybody knows, yeah. but, I mean, knows I, where they stand. I mean, right? are the villains of the piece really women with children having picnics in the park? Uh, or indeed, could they be elsewhere? No, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right there. I think we should have followed the Welsh example and still allowed gatherings of 30 outside, because yeah. I think, uh, you know, it is, it is accepted that outside is, is much less of a risk. Right. And also, uh, the point about common sense... I don't think... The point about common sense as well, John, is that, you know, nobody's... Nothing, I mean, I don't remember the last time I sat outside with 30 other people. I mean, it's not like we go to concerts or anything <laughs> anymore. But it means that you can, if you wish to, have a sort of, uh, you know, a little family picnic, invite a couple of friends, you know, it might be 12 of you, um, rather than going, oh, Christ, we have to go into two groups of six and pretend that we're not together. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think, I think the idea that the British public cannot absorb... The, the concept of it of the risk being different in, indoors and outdoors yeah. uh, i think is is patronizing and the idea that you have to have the rule of six uh, outdoors as well just because otherwise you'd confuse people uh, i think that's ridiculous yeah but uh, you know I, on the other hand i will defend the government for um trying to do something to to restrict uh, social mixing because i think you know you don't want to allow uh, the infections to get completely out of control again. As long as you, as long as you march around with the placard, it's all right though. But you know, well, let's let's leave that to one side and talk about um, Angela Rayner because I believe very firmly, you know, the influence this show has far and wide. Uh, I said yesterday the Labour Party should be ashamed of themselves for not allowing Angela Rayner to go up against Boris Johnson uh, instead of letting Ed Miliband do it. She's the deputy leader. Now they finally relented. They've finally taken away the mask of shame and gone. Okay, we can be represented <laughs> by a woman. I think it's going to be great today. <laughs> I, I do too. I'm, I've always been a. I mean, I don't, I don't want to damage her political chances, and so far I haven't succeeded in damaging her political chances by saying nice by things about her. her. <laughs> but I did, because she did manage to get to be deputy leader of the party, mm. despite my endorsement. Right. Uh, but well I done. do think she's a very impressive. I think she's a very impressive politician, and I think she is. Uh, She's one of the one of the strongest yeah. uh, members of Keir Starmer's team, and and they ought to deploy her more often. But also and, tactically, uh, I'm, looking for, ta I'm looking forward to it as you are. Yeah, tactically, surely if you are going to be trying to score points and land punches on the prime minister, who is perceived by some, and I'm not one of them, to be a bit of a misogynist, then you put a woman up against him and make him make him squirm and make him feel as though he has to be really careful how he puts her down and is has to be really careful about how he answers questions and he doesn't appear to be too flippant or sexist or doesn't get. A of mansplaining, all of which, of course, will be accusations yeah. made later on today. We know that. But I think it's a very clever ploy. Absolutely. But I mean, I do also accept that, um, you know, brilliant though Angela Rayner is, I think. Yeah, questions, I wouldn't go that far. Questions of EU, we don't know if she's brilliant. EU, 
EU trade is not really her strong point. So I think it was right to put uh, the shadow business secretary, Ed Miliband, up uh, against Boris on on the internal market bill. Uh, so I think I think I think the Labour Party has played uh, played a clever game. Well, except that Ed Miliband's yesterday's man. Everybody knows it, and I mean he's not even the cleverest politician in his own family, as some people have said. But the bottom line, as well, <laughs> is, the, the bottom line as well uh, is that he lost massively. I mean, all these people on social media going, "Wasn't Ed Miliband brilliant? Didn't he slaughter the Prime Minister?" Well, yeah, apart from the fact that the Prime Minister won by a massive margin this, this incredibly so-called <laughs> unpopular bill. Well, I completely, completely agree with you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I think all the, the huge praise on social media for, for Ed Miliband's performance was uh, was overdone. Yeah. I thought the prime minister was uh, was 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 on a very strong uh, strong defence. And actually, there were some there were some other Labour MPs who made much more uh, penetrating uh, arguments against the internal market bill. I mean, Hillary Benn, for example, mm. I thought. Uh, made a very good speech, and the, and Darren Jones, who's the uh, chair of one of the uh, select committees, uh, is a very promising new Labour MP. I hope I haven't destroyed his political. Uh, <laughs> I think you're underestimating. By, uh, by I think you're underestimating him. your influence, John. I mean, this is a serious business. But I presume <laughs> you got you got to presume that Angela Rayner will go at uh, Boris over the testing today, won't she? Well, I assume I assume so. I don't think she's going to spend uh, all six questions. Uh, demanding to know why the government intends to break international law, mm. uh, because actually I don't think I, I don't think most voters uh, understand that or care about it particularly. No. I mean, you know, obviously they sh- they should. I mean, tearing up international treaties is a bad thing, but I think people are much more uh, concerned about whether they can get a test or not. Well, exactly. And, but also uh, Boris you know, Johnson Kier- is only going to break. Starmer last week. Go on, sorry. So Keir Starmer was last week. I thought he was absolutely right to to ask all six questions about about tests because it's what people are worried about. And Boris Johnson did not give very satisfactory answers. Yeah, but tragically for Keir Starmer, he got the wrong week because he should have been there this week to ask those questions. Because last week nobody was interested. So you know, timing is everything. It's a bit like when you write the the, the news story of the the decade, but you get the, the the wrong week to write it in. It doesn't matter. Nobody <laughs> reads it and nobody takes it in. Nobody's going to remember that Keir Starmer rose, raised all these questions last week because all they're going to think now is that, hey, that woman's about much better than him. <laughs> yeah, the, you're absolutely Stay right. Stay in isolation, you, you, Keir, no, with my advice. There's no advantage to being right too early. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But listen, um, delightful to talk to you, John. Uh, we'll see how it all goes this afternoon. We'll be bringing it to you live. John Rental there from The Independent. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, uh, about the BBC, uh, which is more often than not not a right cracking watch. Uh, Zoe Ball is now the highest paid member uh, of the little BBC family. This uh, during the time when they can't afford, apparently, not to charge old age pensioners um, uh, hundreds of pounds to pay for a licence fee. She's basically, as my uh, good friend and colleague Kevin O'Sullivan pointed out, got a pound for every listener that she's lost uh, over the past 12 months. So congratulations to Zoe Ball. Million pound pay rise for failure. Let's talk to Martin Daubney, a man that knows a thing or two about journalism, a thing or two about business as well. Uh, he's, of course, got a new uh, project going on called Unlocked. We'll ask him about that as well. Former Brexit Party MEP. Martin, very good morning to you. Top of the morning, Michael. It's now, great to be back in the home of Common Sense. Listen, fantastic to have you here. Now, listen, when you were a magazine editor, can you imagine getting a pay rise for losing readers? No. Nor can anybody else in Christendom. No. Nor can anybody else outside of Planet BBC. And isn't it wonderful, Mike, to, to see the full extent of their vanity? They thought yesterday was going to be a story about the gender pay gap. Hey, yeah. good news, lads. Zoe Ball now earns more than Gary Lineker. We've fought the good fight, as you were. And then look, she's lost a million listeners, gained a million quid, 
as Kevin says, quite right. And then Lineker has taken a pay cut and was also at the same time ordered to control his Twitter feed. And what was the first thing he did, Mike? He went straight on Twitter and he said, oh dear, thoughts are with the haters. Yes. This difficult time. I replied to that saying, oh dear, um, here we go. Lineker is a turkey voting for Christmas with every smug tweet. He replied, so please, it annoys you. Yeah. Thank you for not. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, these guys don't seem to get the fact that they, 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 they're literally being paid by us and then they're insulting us with their smugness. Yeah, and I think that's the point. We, we have to remember that this is, it's not an optional or a voluntary thing. It's a compulsory payment and people are fined. People go to prison. A disproportionate amount of those are impoverished mm. women. And yet here we have a multimillionaire being defended by the Twitter author because he has the woke screen. Yeah. He's a Remainer central and he wants to adopt a refugee. So he's seemingly immune to criticism. But look, before this conversation goes on any further, Mike, I've got something I'd like to say. Mm. Here we go. Land of hope and glory, mother of the free. <laughs> Brilliant. Listen, congratulations, guys. Thank you. you. Have you have you adopted a couple of uh, of those who are on the outskirts of society now? You've brought them into. You've done a Gary Lineker. You got Lawrence Fox, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got, we, got, we got Lawrence Sparks and, and Calvin Robertson, who, of course, was, was subjected to all sorts of aggro yesterday. I think the BBC is is a whole conversation, but it's it's one head of the same beast. Yes. And that is political correctness getting out of control, um, a contempt for ordinary working folk, um, and a sense of national shame. BBC comedy is now about as funny as Ebola. Um, we, are, we are hearing things about... Um, white privilege, critical race theory. This is meant to be comedy. We're having it rammed down our yeah. throats, Martin. Well, I saw that the other, the other, the other tweet that you put out, Martin, which was about this incredible kind of uh, racist uh, monologue that was done by, by some supposedly black comedian about killing Whitey. What was that all about? Well, and this is the new Frankie Boyle comedy show. Do you remember when Frankie Boyle used to be funny? Frankie Boyle I mean, blocked me at one point because apparently yeah. he can't take it. He can only give it out. Yeah, that's because you speak... Too much common sense, Mike, and that's the problem. They don't want to hear critical voices. They want to live in an echo chamber. The the pay structure is a part of that. The comedy is a part of that. Calvin Robinson, who, who was you saw in shot there, was on TV yesterday talking about critical race theory and how Black Lives Matter is damaging race relations in Britain. Um, for that, he was trolled all day. The BBC is part of this problem. You know, we we have an absolute refusal to take the breadth of public opinion. If you stand outside of that, you are put into a pigeonhole as being racist, xenophobic, Little England, whatever. And yet they carry on. It gets worse today, Mike. News is out that not only the front of camera staff are paid so, so much, but 200 executives are paid more than the prime minister. Blimey. In what country is a state broadcaster paying its employees so much money? The system is broken. It's time for a complete review. I welcome yesterday's news. Because it's more information that it's time to defund the BBC and end this racket. They are the propaganda wing of the country. They don't represent the people. They hold ordinary common sense Brits in absolute contempt. If you vote for Brexit, if you don't agree with the woke mantra, you are considered an unworthy human being. Yeah. And then they pay themselves this so much money. Look, Michael, the fight back is beginning. People are coming over to broadcasting platforms like yours. 
in their droves. And long may it continue, my friend. Well, listen, we will continue in a minute. I'm going to ask you about your new platform as well. But what about uh, this diversity business with the BBC? Because they seem to have somehow misread the rules on diversity. They seem to think that they they become more diverse by giving loads more middle class white people loads more money on the grounds that they're women. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying for years now that the BBC's idea of diversity is people who look different but think the same. In fact, I said that on the Defund the BBC podcast with Calvin Robinson last week. Mm. We have a real problem. Uh, We have a one-sided conversation about diversity, and most people are just being left behind by this. Diversity is people who think the same but look differently. Absolutely right. So tell us a bit about Unlocked, because I think I did. I not see you interviewing Lawrence Fox uh, and maybe Calvin as well uh, on, on that new platform. Tell us about it. Yeah, so Unlocked is the new platform that that intends to give a voice to these uncomfortable arguments. Um, We are apolitical, but we are free thinkers. We're against the oppressive thought patterns of control, such as woke thinking. Um, We are not left, we are not right, and I'm a former Brexit Party MEP, and I think the great success we had there uh, was being diverse, in the true sense of diversity, politically diverse, diverse of opinion, ethnically diverse, although we don't want to be pigeonholing, but the whole point is let's have free and open conversations about things that the mainstream media are, are, are terrified of. Why can't we talk about Rotherham, about grooming gangs, about how the country has been downtrodden and shut up? Why can't we have all these difficult debates about immigration without being called xenophobic little Englanders? The vast majority of people want to have these conversations, and yet we find that our mainstream media platforms are not only stopping it, if you dare to have the temerity to bring it up, as we saw with Calvin Robinson yesterday, you are annihilated for, for having a majority viewpoint. It's not an extremist opinion right. to be against immigration. It's not an extremist viewpoint to be against grooming gangs. It's not an extremist opinion to say, why can't we look at why the lockdowns are occurring in places like Leicester and Blackburn and Oldham, but we are sweeping the truth under the carpet in the name of not offending anybody, and it's damaging, and that is not a free country. We need new media platforms to take on the mainstream media. That's what Unlocked is going to be. And there's a great hunger for that, Martin, so I I wish you every success with it, because let's finish with this one point from today's news. We were all slightly encouraged yesterday because we thought that Lewis Hamilton was going to get himself into trouble for wearing that T-shirt that he wore because it was a political statement. It now turns out that the Formula One organising body has actually questioned its own rules and said, actually, maybe we're a bit too stringent by saying that people shouldn't make political statements. So now, presumably, it's going to be a free-for-all. You know, you're going to have uh, people with T-shirts of Boris Johnson's face on them, Angela Merkel's face. I mean, who knows what they're going to do? Isn't it funny how Black Lives Matter, which from the very outset has transparently been a political organisation that wants to abolish the police and abolish capitalism, is now being backed by a multimillionaire with a carbon footprint the size of a country (laughs) who's sponsored by Mercedes, Rolex. You know what these guys are doing? They want to feed the crocodile so they're the last to be eaten. That's what it is. They're terrified. They they don't have any voice. If they speak out against it, they they are pigeonholed as racist. People are stopping watching the F1, even the Premier League, when they took the knee to Black Lives Matter. They're going in without thinking it through. FIFA are banning poppies on shirts, but they're allowing Black Lives Matter. It's just another side of the same coin, Mike. It is. If you don't subscribe to the mainstream, mainstream, then you are castigated. But the vast majority of people do not agree with this stuff. 
They really don't. Martin, listen, great to talk to you. And thanks for the impromptu uh, Land of Hope and Glory. Cheered everybody up this morning. Uh, Calvin Robinson and uh, Lawrence Fox there with him. I hope you don't have to look after them all day because they can get a bit tricky in the afternoon. I can tell you that. Martin Daubney, uh, now from uh, an organisation called Unlocked, former Brexit Party MEP, of course. Lots of common sense spoken this morning. It's only quarter to 11. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I don't know where the time is going this year, but it's already um, Wednesday. It's already September the 16th. Uh, we're already halfway through September. Uh, we're still getting reasonably nice weather. It still feels relatively summery. Um, but pretty soon, we are going to be in the autumn of 2020. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Let's talk to Neil Oliver, uh, a man that we speak to at this time every week uh, for some wit and wisdom and common sense, let's face it. Neil, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Now, I read, I read with fascination your uh, your piece in the Sunday Times this week about your own kind of testing experience, because um, I was saying to John Rental at the start of the show that although Keir Starmer raised all these questions about testing last week, everyone's kind of forgotten uh, that he did it because he was a week too early. You know, now it seems to have reached a kind of critical mass. Tell us your story of, uh, of how you managed to finally uh, get a test somewhere relatively close to where you lived. Yeah, our eldest boy uh, reported, uh, you know, a, well, he had a hacking cough and he had a, a bit of a temperature. He was hot to the touch, wasn't mm. feeling very well. So doing the responsible thing, uh, we, we reported to the school uh, that we thought uh, in the present circumstances we would get him a test. And, and it's, you need to get a test within three days for kids. Yeah. For, for medical reasons, I don't fully understand, but there's a bit of a clock ticking. Uh, and so we knew that we would also have, we kept our other two kids in as well. So we kept the three in because we weren't sure whether we had COVID in the house and, and so on. So we needed a, a resolution quite quickly. And my wife started using the website that you're directed to, to, to book a test. Uh, and the first uh, places that we were offered, having gone through the, the process of saying that we're in Stirling in the central belt, we got offered Inverness, which is over a hundred miles away, a few hours on the road, one way. Uh, uh, Dornoch, which is a tiny little uh, community, yeah. also 100 miles away. Good golf course, though. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Grand Town on Spain, all sorts. Of, and we thought, is this even, is this wise? You know, should we be loading a car with the five of us, possibly all carrying uh, the virus? Yeah. And 
somewhere like Dornoch and, and turning up and using the loos and you know whatever getting getting cups of tea and whatever should we do so we didn't we we held fire aware that the clock was ticking we, we got into the second day without ever having come across a, a useful destination we were offered uh, somewhere in London uh, we were offered uh, somewhere at Ironbridge uh, in, you know further to the north of England but still you know two hours away for us one way Finally, with the you know when we were getting worried that we wouldn't be able to meet the deadline on the third day, we were offered Edinburgh Airport, which is just uh, thirty miles from where we right. live. In. We got the test done; it was all very efficient on, on the ground, and uh, and we got a, a result back that was negative, which was what we had suspected all along anyway. And all of the kids were able to go back to school. But you think we're just about to, to enter into the the traditional cold and flu season. Yeah, but and typical, you're every other person you know has got a got something, sniffles, right. shivery. We thought if this system gets gets loaded to that kind of capacity, yeah. what's it going to be like? And of course, my wife and I, we both work at home. Uh, and so had we needed to, if we'd missed the deadline and had to keep the kids in for the 10 days, either way, just to make sure that the virus was no longer infectious, we could have absorbed that. Yeah. Of course, there are other people for whom that would have been a major hit if they'd had to suddenly make provision for keeping three kids yeah. at home. We well, were just... Well, there, we were were just already, like, there are already stories I'm reading uh, today where people are not even allowing their kids back into school at the moment because they don't feel comfortable doing so. Um, I think that's probably a mistake on their part, but entirely within their rights to do, I suppose. Um, but, I mean, I'm also hearing stories about entire schools being shut down because they've got one teacher who's got the virus. And, and I always say every week, Neil, to the point of boredom, you know, we need to learn better how to live with this rather than to try and pretend that every time we see somebody getting it that we all run away i think it's i think it's i mean for me I, sometimes i think it's a bit like watching you know old-time alchemy mm. you know we're trying to turn base metals into gold and you know we know that that's just not possible and i feel as though the the solution or, or the goal that's being sought here in terms of testing and track and trace is simply with the best will in the world and even with the most Herculean efforts by all concerned is not achievable. I, I, I wonder if it can even be done at all. And, that, and as, a, as a consequence, we might simply have to find other ways of going about it. Mm. My own prediction, we've got, we know dozens of people around here whose kids have got something like the cold at the moment, yeah. which in, in this context could be COVID-19. My prediction is that people, many people who can't keep their kids off are just going to send them to school mm. yeah. and, and keep students. Or if they do have to keep them at home for a day or two, like you would do maybe with a, a traditional cold, they'll just phone the school and say, whatever, you know, sickness and diarrhea or or whatever. They'll just make some other they'll just make some other explanation mm. so that they don't get of necessity swept up into the into the mechanics of the COVID testing system, which yeah. I think is always going to be imperfect for many, many people. Well, not least because there could be um, people in your street with kids who have no symptoms at all, but who are actually infected with COVID because we learned this weekend um, that as many as 80% of people who have it don't show any symptoms. Y yes, I, I, my, my feeling, my, my instinct is for common sense. I, I think so many people are, are blessed with common sense and are able to make their own judgments and their own arrangements 
around members of their own family and extended family who are elderly or with underlying health conditions. People are, are capable of making decisions about you know, not, not going near them, uh, you know, self-isolating and all the rest of it without the need for across-the-board rules. Mm. Because as, it, as it's been unfolding, the rules just change on a, a daily, if not an hourly basis, which inevitably confuses people uh, and people are just left in a constant state of, of what's next. Mm. And, and I think being, being reasonable, I think that the people should be trusted to have common sense and that there are other ways of managing this situation without constantly looking to more and more draconian authoritarian rules uh, that are just uh, destroying people's lives, mm. taking away parties. We could be coping with this a lot better. I agree. And I think both the First Minister of Scotland and the Prime Minister of this country and, of course, the uh, the Health Secretary as well, have been kind of fed a bit of a dummy as well by some of the scientific advisers because I see a story today in Scotland that uh, the numbers of people with COVID in hospitals might have been wildly overestimated. We know that that was the case down here as well. And there's an awful lot of what is being regarded as scientific information, which clearly is just speculative. I get a sense that uh, because the, the governments and plural, governments across Europe, here, uh, UK, Scotland, and all the rest of it, were initially quite understandably frightened about what the virus was and how it was going to affect mm. lives. The initial estimates that were coming in, you know, famously Neil Ferguson and people were saying, you could be looking at half a million deaths. And quite understandably, and with great public support, the, the government said, right, let's, let's, let's put a lid on this, flatten the curve and all the rest of it, save the NHS. Now, it, it, I think that the evidence is starting to show that it, it, it doesn't have, it, it never did have the potential to be as dangerous as, we, as was being predicted. But that having embarked upon a, a, a set of measures that has you know, so flattened the economy as well as the curve, has so affected people's lives, I think there's an instinct within a lot of the governments to just keep on going. Mm. Lose momentum. And I think I sometimes feel as if governments could... Uh, turn to the people, the common sense people, and say, we've re-evaluated this situation. We did what was, I think you'll all agree, yes. was right in the short term. Now we're, the picture has changed and we can see that this may be something that we that we can live with or that we simply have to live with. Uh, and we're going to open up life again to a, to a greater extent. Yes. That's that's my instinct. Mm. But I, I sense that governments are thinking, well, having, having shut down the world, it might be, it might be, very controversial to turn around and say, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Right. But I mean, if they had any brains, surely they could do that without having to say we shouldn't have done it because they could still say, look, we needed to do what we did. But we now believe that the, uh, you know, the, the situation has changed. The science has, has moved. You know, we now believe this. But that doesn't mean you made a mistake. So if they were so terrified of admitting mistakes, they don't have to. They can just say, the situation has changed. And when you think back, and I'm going to bring in the wisdom of ancients here as well, this book, uh, new book that you've, that you've just published, because in the end, I look back at some of the previous prime ministers that we've had, previous world leaders like Billy Brandt, people like Margaret Thatcher, people like Ronald Reagan, people who were very much in touch with their own sort of people, if you like, who would have been more than happy to move and uh, change horses in midstream if they had to. Oh, yes, I... I've, I've obviously, you know, I've been working on this book for a while, and 
you know, I've been looking at all sorts of, you know, what might, what I've been calling ancient wisdom. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about within, you know, within the last few de- decades, you know, you're talking within our own lifetimes, people having been prepared or leaders having been prepared to take a different path. Yeah. In terms of ancient wisdom, you know, there's a, well, I mean, there's a, there's a 2,400 year old uh, Chinese book, for example, called the Tao Te Ching, which a lot of people have heard of. It means the, the way of integrity or, or, or something along those lines. Yeah. And it was written by a, a Chinese author called Lao Tzu. Now, within it, it's a very short book, but it's got it's full of wisdom. And, and one of the one of the ideas there is that the best leaders. This is 2,400 years ago, 400 years BC. Right. The best leaders are almost almost invisible. You know, they do what they do without much fuss or fanfare uh, to the extent that the people, the population that they're governing, almost think they've, they've led themselves, mm. almost think that the success is their own, yeah. which it is. And then when you come down a bit, you know, you get to, you know, leaders that are just loved, high profile, very visible, but they're adored because the people agree with what they're doing. But there's a sliding scale. And eventually you, you get down to leaders who are feared. And then worst of all, according to this 2,400-year-old wisdom, Wisdom. You get to leaders who are despised. Mm. I think we can all think of, for various <laughs> reasons, context, leaders who are being despised at the moment. Yeah. And there, two thousand four hundred years ago, the author was saying, where the where the leaders don't trust the people, the people become untrustworthy. You know, we hear all the time about the importance of paying attention to nature, mm. respecting nature, and and allowing that that nature, you know, is supreme. That, this is this is we're told this all the time climate change and, and all the rest of it but there's not the same respect being extended to human nature and people have common sense people deserve to be trusted in the main and if the leaders trust the people then the, then the people will do the right thing mm. but increasingly these leaders many of whom are increasingly despised are taking the position that they can't trust their populations and so they've reverted to treating the populations like unruly toddlers, yeah. or perhaps something that's actually that actually poses a threat. And you, you you have to treat people. You have to trust people. Yeah, and there is there is a there is a psychological po- point to this as well. I think Neil, because I mean I've spoken to to psychiatrists about stuff like this before, and they say that if you continually kind of um, classify somebody as a bad man he will eventually become a bad man. If he gets treated as though everywhere he goes, he's bad and he's doing bad things, he will become that bad person. Absolutely. But we're being, it's not just in terms of COVID, although it's there, that people are not being trusted. You know, people are not being trusted to make sensible decisions and to take care of their own families, Mm. of their own communities, of their own societies. And when you when you infantilize and distrust populations, you you reap what you sow. And if you and if you make people eventually people begin to believe that society has dissolved and that they can't trust each other, and to some extent that they can't even trust themselves. And that's a hopeless situation. Mm. We we need leadership. We need it coming from the top that we are to be trusted. Because whether they say that or not, the fact is we, the people, are to be trusted. We have common sense and we know how to behave and we know demonstrably how to look after one another mm. if we're left to do it. Right. Well, you take this rule of six, for example. I mean, everyone I speak to, and I mean everyone, 
thinks that it's an absolute crock of nonsense. Nobody really believes in it. Nobody thinks that they're going to adhere to it. Nobody really imagines why they would be in some way criminalised by it. And so you have to ask the question, what's the point? And the best answer that comes back is, oh, well, they have to give some, you have to give some kind of um, salute to uh, trying to limit the numbers of people meeting. Well, why? And, and why six, you know? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, if, if the leaders keep coming up with rules that are harder and harder to abide by, that are more and more intrusive, and that compromise more and more of what people quite rightly regard as their, their liberties and their, and their human rights, they will be left with no alternative but to break the rules. Because if people are given bad rules, and they know that they can make their own decisions for themselves that aren't going to compromise the safety of their families, aren't going to compromise the safety of the wider community, then they will take that path. But they have been left with no option but to, but to break the law. Mm. And in that way, they are therefore seen as untrustworthy. And, we'll, and you'll, get, you'll start to see these stories about so many people are breaking the rules and regulations, and now we're looking at having no alternative but to go to whatever, curfews and lockdowns. But it is a self-fulfilling prophecy and i just believe that people are to be trusted and that we are left with with freedoms and liberties and our own common sense we can, can we can take care of each other our mm. own families our communities we don't need we don't need leaders telling us what time to get out of bed what right. time to leave the house what time to go back into the house and what to do while we're outside and we don't and presumably also looking back into the past as you do in this book you know there are no societies who kind of um, hired dozens and dozens of, 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 of the similar, similar type people to COVID marshals, whoever ended up in a good place? Oh, well, I, I, mean, I mean, you don't have to look any further back and say what happened behind the, behind the Iron Curtain, mm. you know, Soviet Union. Uh, you know, by the, by the, in, the, in the decade before, or the decades before the, the wall came down in the late 80s, um, you know, the, the, the secret police there, the, the, you know, the Stasi. The Stasi, and, yeah manifestation it took in different countries some in, in east germany I, I believe it was something like one in four or one in five people were informing on behalf of the stasi yeah. which in a typical family four or five people sat around their dinner table had to had to face the realization that probably one of them was informing was, on was the rest i know to the, to the stasi and so you get there you get that situation of complete untrustworthiness and no one can trust anybody and this, right. is a, this, is a, this is a disaster for society. And we've, so we've seen it in the very recent past. And as you say, there is absolutely no reason to believe that when you, when you impose unlivable conditions upon populations that it ever works out well. Mm. And it, it just becomes a simmering pressure cooker, which eventually bursts out. And people, it either bursts out in forms of a, of a violent revolution or, or miraculously, in the case of the end of the, the Soviet Union, it, it almost ended with a whimper rather than with a bang, which was, you know... That was actually... I, I found that really surprising, actually. And, I mean, it's hard to explain sometimes to... I mean, to my own children, uh, actually, about the fall of the Berlin Wall, because I remember watching it, and I was in uh, America at the time, watching the live coverage of the Berlin Wall being literally knocked down, not just by people uh, in power, but by the ordinary people of Berlin who were literally tearing it down brick by brick. And it was an incredibly sort of emotional moment for those of us who knew what had gone on before. Yes, and it, it could, obviously, you know, you could have sort of wargamed it, I suppose, in advance and, and imagined what might have happened. You know, if you, uh, you know, you look back to something like 
1789 and the French Revolution, or you look at 1848 and the, you know, the, the year of revolution across uh, lots of European capitals were all, uh, not London, but you know, across Europe, there were lots of uh, cities that, that had, had revolution. Uh, and there was, uh, you know, there was uh, punitive violence and, and revenge was taken at a, a greater or lesser level. And you could have imagined that something similar would have would have unrolled across um, across the, the you know the capitals or the countries of the, of the Soviet Union, but it didn't. And it, it was almost it, was, it almost felt I think maybe looking on at it and looking back on it now, as though uh, right prevailed. That, that what had happened there was that a society had by had by a process. Uh, become completely wrong mm. and unworkable and that right prevailed and, and human nature asserted itself and in that instance in the coming down of the Berlin Wall it did so in a, in a way that was quite you know was quite lovely to behold. Yes but I wonder you know, whether whether our particular culture here in this country is not one which would force political change really in any way because we are more kind of you know oh well you know uh, we don't like the food but when they come and ask us how the food is they we all go oh it's fine thank you very much indeed for asking and then you carry on eating it you know we kind of don't we're not we, i know we've had in the past uprisings but we haven't really had mass uprisings which have changed the system what you just that 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 that, that you just described uh, that way in which you know so often you're whatever food comes and it, you don't think it's particularly good, but mums and dads say to the kids, look, just say it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just, just get we'll on just with it. That, and there are other examples you could cite, but that to me is what is so unbelievably uh, precious about the society that there has been mm. in, in recent times in Britain. That, what, what you have just described, but the point is it's so quiet, it's so understated, and doesn't seek any kind of fanfare or round of applause, that it's so easy to take that for granted mm. and to trick yourself into thinking that that is just the way the world is. But, of course, you look around the wider world, and the wider world is absolutely not like that. Mm. And there's this dangerous complacency that we live... I always think about us living in some sort of lovely high-rise penthouse flat that's great, and the views are brilliant, and it's all serviced and well looked after but it's held up by a structure that we don't see. You know, when you look out of your penthouse flat, you don't see the tower that's holding you in the air. And this terrible complacency that people seem to be thinking they could plant bombs in the foundations or rip apart the tower, mm. while somehow miraculously leaving the lovely penthouse flat, which is the, the beautiful, calm society in which we have lived, somehow suspended in mid-air. Right. You don't get to take away the history and the structure and all the minutiae that you overlook day to day that's invisible, like people, you know, being quietly tolerant in cafes and, and restaurants of, of maybe substandard food. These are all symptoms of something very, very precious and in world terms, something very, very unusual. Uh, and, and, to, and to contemplate or, or to indulge the notion that you could tear any of that down, any of that structure, and still leave the good bits behind is so dangerous. I, yeah. mean, I just, on a day-to-day -day basis, almost as I see it beginning to dissolve, you know, like a sandcastle on the beach that's got the waves coming in around it and the structure starting to get unstable, I'm made more and more aware of how precious it is that which we have had. You know, and if it's there what we've been talking about, why, oh, why 
Are our leaders suddenly thinking that we the people are not to be trusted? Why are they suggesting that we don't have the sense we were born with? And why do they think that we don't in our own rights have every intention of looking after ourselves and our families and our communities? We're not daft. Mm. And if the, if, the, if the leaders would just trust the people based on the experience of decades and, and a couple of centuries, we can look after ourselves. And the, the leadership at the moment needs to take a long, hard look at itself and realize that if they don't trust the people, the people will be deemed and will be seen to be untrustworthy, which they aren't. Yes. But seen and will be deemed to be untrustworthy. And then what have they got? Now they're like sheepdogs constantly having to nip at the heels, the flanks of sheep to make them behave. And we are not sheep. We are people. Yeah. Most of us are anyway. Neil, a pleasure as ever. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Neil Oliver, the book is Wisdom of the Ancients um, and there is plenty of wisdom to be had uh, from this book but also from this show uh, as, as well because uh, this is what we get when we mix common sense uh, the people of this country, the politicians of this country, me, Neil Oliver, a bunch of other guests as well. Uh, this is, of course, uh, the fastest growing radio station in the country. Is it any wonder? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, it's time for our homeschooling segment. We had a fascinating bit yesterday on hedgehogs. Never seen uh, quite such an exciting and, uh, shall we say, enthusiastic um, member of the hedgehog community uh, to talk to. Today, uh, we're going to talk about writing. Luke Brown is a fiction writer. He's author of Theft, which is published this year. He's also a lecturer in creative writing at the University of Manchester. He's going to tell us how to write a book which many people think they want to do. Many people think they have a book in them, but not a lot of people get around to doing. So let's find out whether Luke can convince us. Or Luke, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, people do say, don't they, uh, I'd love to write a book. Um, many people embark upon it, I suppose. Um, some people have the gift without really needing to be trained. But, but it is possible, is it not, to train yourself to be a writer of books? Yeah, I think that the thing to do is to is to start slow, to start small, probably, and write yourself a short story first. Right. Um, and the short story is um, there's quite a neat little formula, I think, for a short story. A short story is a character who is faced with a conflict, and over the course of that story, uh, the character, the conflict will intensify normally over sort of three different scenes, and uh, and and reach a sort of dramatic peak in which it resolves itself or doesn't resolve itself. Yeah. Um, in sort of genre terms, that might be um, genre fiction. It might be like something dramatic, like trying to escape a, you know, a mad monk or right. something like that. But uh, <laughs> in, in, in the more sort of literary terms, yes. you might. Well, that's the great, the great beauty of writing is that it can be whatever you want, right? I mean, it does. I mean, yeah. there aren't really, I mean, there are rules, but there sort of aren't rules in a way, aren't there? Because, yeah. I mean, I suppose um, some people would say, well, can you write a story without having an, any idea how it ends? And I think you can. I think you can start um, books. I mean, I've written several books, none of which have ever been published, right? But um, it's just, that's partly due to my uselessness at getting publishers to publish them. Um, but yeah. I wrote a novel once and I didn't really know how it was going to end when I started it. And then when it did end, I was quite happy with the way it ended. But I also know many professional writers who hate what they write and don't think it's any good. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think there are two skills of writers. There are the sort of improvisers, like who, who I number myself among, who have an idea for a novel mm. but they don't know where it will go they have right. like an idea of character in a, an interesting situation but they, they want to find out about that character in the process of writing it right. 
Um, there, and then perhaps there are sort of more other writers who like to see the whole thing in advance. But mm. I would advise beginning writers not to worry about um, knowing what happens, really. Just try to have a character in an interesting scenario. Yes. And, Think what might happen to them and put them in, put them in front, put them in, in contact with other characters and make them talk to each other and, and surprise, you, surprise yes. yourself. Because right, that's happens. the great thing, isn't it? If you can create a character, you can then move the character on, like say Ian Rankin does when he creates Rebus. You know, suddenly he's got a character that can be in lots of different stories. And and I don't know yeah. if that's that's something I was going to ask you about your own book Theft as to what what that's actually about. But but people used to say things like character is plot to me. Um, how how, yeah. how how important would you say that that phrase is? Yeah, I think that's that's true, really. I mean that 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 you can't quite separate them. That um, certainly in sort of literary fiction and 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 sort of more realistic fiction, um, it's very much about what that character. You know, the plot is what happens to that character mm. and how that character changes as a result of what happens to him. Um, in your more you know, in, in, in say much more genre fiction like thrillers, then the plot becomes more important than the characters. And you'll have a lot of sort of stock character types who exist to be murdered, say, or to, um, you know, or to, or to, or to, or to, uh, to come into antagonist, antagonism with, with the main character. Mm. But uh, yeah, you can't, uh, and, and, and that, that really is the big difference, I suppose, between sort of literary fiction and, and genre fiction often is, 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 uh, is the sort of depth in which one goes into the character yeah. um, um, and, and, and like plot-driven fiction, very plot-driven fiction, doesn't necessarily, well, we'll rely more on stereotypes and yes. caricature. Well, it's what, I mean, it's the stuff that we used to call, you know, sort of airport paperbacks, which are incredibly successful. Yeah. And the people that write them make an awful lot of money, um, like sort of Elmore James and that kind of thing. And people love them because they're not, they're not difficult to read, are they? No, exactly. And, 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 and you want, and that, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I suppose I'm classed as a literary writer, but I, I, I love plot. You know, I, I want things, exciting things to happen in my novels. And I want, um, I want them to be easy to read. I want them to be full of funny dialogue mm. and, um, uh, you know, exciting events and uh, and, and surprises and uh, and twists. Yes. So tell us a bit about theft. What's what's the what's the sort of plot line in theft? Um, so it's a novel. That's a novel set in 2016 um, about a um, a guy who falls in love with a woman who's going out with a much older man and sets about trying to split them up against the context of Brexit. You know, he's a sort of uh, he lives in East. London, I like it already. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're sort of rich West Londoners. Um, so he's he's full of envy, and he's a sort of unreliable narrator. You realise as you go through that, um, although he's quite charming and um, funny and happy-go-lucky on the surface, he's, he's sort of seething with resentment, um, right. and sort of drives that. And which one of them's the, which one of them's the Remainer? Um, they are all Remainers, I think. Yeah, in this one, it's very much really. Sort of like, I thought you were going to tell there. me that the old rich guy was a Brexiteer. A member um, of, the, of he's UKIP. From, he's from the north, so he, his town, he, he goes back there the day after, and that, his town, Fleetwood, where I'm from, is very much a, a, a leaving town, you know. Right. Um, so, so you get that sense of like the, the division between London and the regions in, right. in, 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 in the politics and right. how little they understand of each other. That's the theme. And I, I suppose it would be churlish to ask if he gets the girl in the end. Uh, he, well, there's a, there's a wedding at the end, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Jolly good. And, and do you find when you're teaching um, writing, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I don't quite know how to ask the question, but do you find that some people take to it more than others? Because I mean, I said you can be taught to do it. Obviously, yeah. it's better if you've got a bit of a flair for it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, of course. Well, I think we'll definitely can learn. I mean, what, what you can do is you can you can you can take some shortcuts, things that you probably realise yourself through writing. You know, you teach yourself to write by writing yourself and looking mm. back. But yeah, um, yeah like, I mean, I teach mostly undergraduates, so um, so that a lot of them, are, which I like, because a lot of them are just trying it out. You know, yeah. they're not they're not coming desperate to come out of the course with a book deal. They're, they're just trying to learn how to express themselves. Right. And, um, and you can kind of teach them a form, you know, like some teaching them to write short stories and you can, you can talk, teach them what a short story is, things mm. they haven't noticed and, um, and give them a framework from which to, which to hang their sort of, you know. And how, how short can a short story be in terms of how many words you write? Uh, it could be, it's like, I mean, it could be half a page, you right. could do it in that long, but uh, I mean, not, I normally say a story, a short story is around about four or 5,000 words. I mean, right. it could be. There are long stories, much longer than that. There are short ones. Um, you want to read a really good short story. There's, there's, there's a great one called Reunion by John Cheever, which is about a, a son meeting his dad in a in a train station he hasn't seen for three years. Mm. And it starts with the line, the last time I ever saw my father was in Grand Central Station. And he's just there are three sort of scenes throughout that story in which the dad takes him for a drink and gets thrown out of every single restaurant he goes to for being rude to the waiter. And then, <laughs> And the story ends with that that was the last time I ever saw my father. Right. And you learn so much just through these little three dramatic encounters. You know, there's lots of you, you have to imagine the history of this of this relationship and what's gone wrong and why he hasn't seen him for yeah. three years. There's a lot left out. But right. you know, it's a very funny, very moving story. Sure. Um, and so if people are listening to this thinking, what can I do now to go and sort of learn how to write if they're not involved in a course or anything like that? What can yeah. should they just read more? Read more, yeah, um, and, 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 and try to form a writing group, a lot of libraries. I mean, I know libraries aren't open at the moment, but many libraries would, would have sort of writing groups. I, so I started off, you know, I wrote, I wrote an entry for a competition. I wrote my first story um, in response to a competition. So have, find, find reasons to complete something and, mm. and don't get despondent if, they, uh, if you don't win the competition um, and, and, and suppose finding readers for yourself is, is, the, is the thing finding a um, I mean essentially what happens in a creative writing course is you all read each other's work you yeah. know and, and there is there is someone like me um, you know pretending to some wisdom at the front of the room or, or, or telling you what he's learned from, from yes. having made lots of because you've got to show it to somebody eventually you might as well do that sooner rather than later right yeah, exactly and maybe that's just your partner or like you you know someone you live with mm. or a friend um um and the, and, and, the, and the process of sharing it to someone as well forces you to look at it a bit harder as well yeah. and, uh, and, and having to imagine I th that's the other thing really is to imagine a reader and 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 although you're doing it for yourself and for your own enjoyment but just imagine well what what how does it what do you need to do to make it enjoyable for someone else yeah. as well sure and that's a good exercise and you. And it's a very nice, pleasant thing to do anyway, particularly if you're stuck in the house at the moment because for some reason you're not at work. I mean, it's a good way to pass the time, spend a couple of hours yeah, a day absolutely. writing something down. I'm sure there's lots of online lectures and things. I haven't, I haven't looked around, but I bet people are doing kind of online uh, creative writing classes and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, Fantastic. Well, Luke, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Good luck with theft. Uh, it sounds like a right roaring, riveting read. I may have to get hold of one uh, and give it a read. Luke Brown, fiction writer. Uh, he's also, of course, a lecturer in creative writing at University of Manchester. Um, if you are sitting around wondering what to do yourself, it's a great thing to get involved in if you can find the time to do it. Even if you do it, you'd be surprised at how much you can write um, just by doing a little bit every day. You know, a thousand words a day. 
you imagine how much you'd have by after six months of that? You'd have, well, you can add it up yourself if you like. I won't give you any prizes for getting it right. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.